And last week we looked at Habakkuk chapter 1. We've seen Habakkuk's complaints towards God. Now let's look at Habakkuk chapter 2. We see the Lord's reply to the prophet. Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 1. I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me and what answer I am to give to this complaint. Then the Lord replied, write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets so that a herald may run with it. For the revelation waits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and it will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. See, the enemy is puffed up. His desires are not upright. But the righteous person will live by his faithfulness. Indeed, wine betrays him. He is arrogant and never at rest. Because he is as greedy as the grave. And like death is never satisfied. He gathers to himself all the nations. And takes captive all the peoples. Will not all of them taunt him with ridicule and scorn, saying, Woe to him who piles up stolen goods and makes himself wealthy by extortion. How long must this go on? Will not your creditors suddenly arise? Will they not wake up and make you tremble? Then you will become their prey, because you have plundered many nations. The people who are left will plunder you, for you have shed human blood. You have destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. Woe to him who builds his house by unjust gain, setting his nest on high to escape the clutches of ruin. You have plotted the ruin of many peoples, shaming your own house and forfeiting your life. The stones of the wall will cry out and the beams of the woodwork will echo it. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and establishes a town by injustice. Has not the Lord Almighty determined that the people's labour is only fuel for the fire, that the nations exhaust themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbours, pouring it from the wineskin till they are drunk, so that he can gaze on their naked bodies. You will be filled with shame instead of glory. Now it is your turn. Drink and let your nakedness be exposed. The cup from the Lord's right hand is coming round to you, and disgrace will cover your glory. The violence you have done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, and your destruction of animals will terrify you, for you have shed human blood. You have destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. Of what value is an idol carved by a craftsman or an image that teaches lies? For the one who makes it trusts in his own creation. He makes idols that cannot speak. Woe to him who says to wood, come to life. Or to a lifeless stone, wake up. Can it give guidance? It is covered with gold and silver. There is no breath in it. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. And we will end our reading there. Know that God will bless to us the public reading of his word. Let's just pray committing ourselves, seeking God's will and guidance as we look at this together. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. Lord, help us to understand it clearly. To know what you want to say to us. And Lord, to respond to it willingly with praise. Lord, help us in our weakness. Help us through your spirit. Help us to see Jesus, we ask in your name. Amen. Everyone loves justice or vengeance. But who is, whose right is it to bring vengeance? Is it us? Is it the government? Is it Batman who claims to be vengeance himself? You know, living in an unjust world can be difficult. It can be cruel. But what's worse is when the injustices of this world are allowed to go unpunished, and instead you might feel that they've been rewarded. So what happens? Where's the justice in this? Whatever happened to fair play? Whenever cheaters are not only rewarded, but they are glorified for what they have done. Time after time, we see this in history. Whether it's in war, in sport. And Hollywood would want us to believe that the good guy eventually wins. But is that really the case? How can the good guy get the victory if his back is against the wall? How can the tables be turned over into their favour? Well, you know, we want to see the righteous succeed. But how can the righteous not only win, but have hope to believe that they're not going to be the losers in the outcome of this story? Last week we began looking at the conversation between Habakkuk and God. And Habakkuk was unhappy at the state of affairs in Judah at that time. As King Jehoiakim was evil, the people followed in his wicked ways and they abandoned God's law. And because of this, God's people were mistreated and abused. God promised to Habakkuk that justice would come, but it would come in the form of the Babylonians. And Habakkuk resisted this notion. He pleaded against God's will. However, nonetheless, he stands firm in faith and he waits for God to respond to him. And like Habakkuk, we must learn to live by faith and not in fear. We must learn to live by faith and wait. For as we wait, we know that God can and will respond to injustice and that his will can and will be done. For God is a God of justice. A God who is upright and righteous in every way. And as Habakkuk says in chapter 1 verse 13, God's eyes are too pure to look on evil and to see it go unpunished. And so as we come to chapter 2 here today, God does look at evil and he cannot tolerate it. In fact, he will put an end to the wickedness, but he will also bring justice and relief to his people who are righteous. We will see how the righteous are to live by faith as they are marked by the Lord God in his grace and preserved. But for those who go against him, they will find out what it means to stand against a holy, sovereign God. And so there are four points that we will look at here today in Habakkuk chapter 2. And the first thing I want us to see in verses 1 to 3 is this. God's word will come true for those who wait. And last time we left Habakkuk with a cliffhanger here in chapter 2, verse 1. After taking his complaint to God, 
he went to take his watch at the ramparts of Jerusalem to look and see how God will respond to his pleas before him. However, in verse 2, God responds here. Look at his response in verses 2 to 3. Then the Lord replied, saying, Write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets, so that the herald may run with it. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end. It will not prove false. Though it lingers, wait for it. It will certainly come and it will not delay. God gives Habakkuk a message. And this message is to be recorded so that it will be a reminder to him and to many others who trust in this message that it's going to happen. But God's people will have to wait. They may not have to wait for a long time. And waiting can feel like forever. Because as we thought about it last week, we are all impatient. But make no mistake, even though we wait, we wait because we find rest in the knowledge that God's word will come true for those who wait. God's revelation will happen in God's timing. And it's to be written down in tablets in verse 3 because it's going to happen. It's literally set in stone here by God. So God tells us to wait. He tells his people to wait. Wait upon God and his instruction. Wait upon God and his timing. Waiting is hard. I hate waiting. I hate waiting on the phone to the council to find out that their call centre is too busy and they hang up on me. I hate waiting because I'm just impatient, like I'm sure the rest of you are. I remember when I was younger, I remember missing the bus for school because I was so impatient waiting, I would give up waiting for the bus. And then five minutes later, as I head inside, the bus would drive past the window. (laughs) But whether we're waiting for test results... We're waiting for a phone call with news. We're waiting for our mood to lift. Or even when we're waiting for our fortunes to turn around. We mustn't react negatively whenever things go on longer than they seem. Remember, you are not in control of the situation. No matter how much you like to think you are or that you can be, you are not. From what we see here in verses 1 to 3, only God is. God is in control. And it is upon his instruction that he asked Habakkuk both to trust him and record in writing what is going to happen, but to see that God is faithful to his word. God is faithful to his promises. And God is faithful to the very end. And if you ever forget that, if you grow impatient with him, Be reminded of who he is in his word. His word is not just a book that tells us about God or about Jesus. It's God himself speaking to us through his word. And he is actively telling us who he is. The kind of God that he is. He's telling us about his nature. He's telling us about his character, his mercy, his love. God is telling us about his grace. You know, we often make notes to remind ourselves all the time of things to do. We all love a checklist, don't we? 
But God gives us more than a checklist to remind us of himself. Even when it feels like he is absent, when it feels like he is quiet, God is still there. And he reminds us of his presence and his power as he actively works in our lives through the promises of his word. His word is true. His word is good. And it will be fulfilled towards those who patiently wait in hope of it. So we are to wait upon God's word, trusting that it will come true. But secondly, in verses 4 to 5, we see this. The righteous and the wicked are separated by their works. And one of Habakkuk's main concerns in chapter 1 was that God's method of judgment would cause both the wicked and the righteous to be swallowed up in the path of destruction and oppression caused by the Babylonians. And he says this in form of poetry. Verse 15 of chapter 1, the wicked foe pulls all of them up with hooks. He catches all of them in the net. But look at verse 4 here. Verse 4 in chapter 2. And we see here that we have a a comparison of the two. The enemy in verse 4 is puffed up. His desires are not upright. And verse 5 explains to us why the enemy is not upright. He's led astray by drink. His greed consumes him. And he is bent on taking as much as he can get. It seems like he will not stop at nothing in world domination at the end of verse 5. Verse 5 says that he gathers to himself all the nations and takes captive all the peoples. But when we look back at verse 4, we see that this is not the way of the righteous. The righteous do not live according to their own successes or their desires. But look at verse 4 with me here. But the righteous person will live by his faithfulness. This faithfulness is the mark that separates the wicked and the righteous here. But what determines righteousness? The Bible tells us that no one is righteous in themselves. All of us are sinners. We have missed the mark or the standard that has been set before us. But a common theme throughout all of scripture is that righteousness is not measured by a record of achievement. It's not measured by being morally good. Instead, righteousness is measured by faith. And having faith is not a one-time act. Coming to God by faith is not just whenever you first become a Christian. Nor is it coming to God by faith only reserved for those exclusive moments in your life whenever life is good or when life is hard depending on how you think God will respond. Faith is a way of life. It is living with hope in the promises of God It is living with the belief that you are not alone in this world because God is with you and he goes before you. It is living with the trust in this God who has given you every promise, the one who you take rest in because God's promises for tomorrow are the pillows for the head of your weary souls to lie upon today. The wicked will never be satisfied. They will be restless. They will continue searching for satisfaction in this world like we see here in verse 5. They will never have enough 
of their fill in this endless rat race that they are running in until life catches up with them or until they kick the bucket. But the righteous find rest. The righteous find satisfaction. And the righteous will find that their hopes have been more than fulfilled. For they will live by their faithfulness in the God who has given them the promise of his word. Just like God says in verses 2 to 3. And so if that's the case for the righteous then, what will happen with the wicked? This was Habakkuk's complaint that he began with in chapter 1. So what will become of them? Well, as we look at verses 6 to 19 now, we see that the wicked are to be punished for their crimes. And God takes into account here the actions of the wicked and he draws up a series of charges against them in verses 6 to 19. Now, for those of you who are observant and you have your Bibles open, you will see that there are five woes here in this section. First in verse 6, then in verse 9, Again in verse 12, in verse 15, and then finally in verse 19. And these woes are sentences delivered by the judge as their wicked actions will be the cause of their downfall as vengeance or justice is placed upon them. Justice is being enacted here as each offence results due to the detriment of others. Verses 6 to 8. We see that the wicked here have made themselves wealthy through theft. Woe to him who piles up stolen goods and makes himself wealthy by exhortation. Therefore those they have stolen from and are still alive will come back to them. In verses 9-11, they have elevated themselves above others. They are stepping on shoulders and heads to get to the top. And believing that because they are on top, they are safe in their nests in verse 9. But despite their security, they will still meet their end. Verses 12 to 14. They've amassed their empires. They've built their cities with bloodshed and violence. No town here in these three verses has been fairly established. But instead... They have been taken from others. Their empire, no matter how great it is, it won't last forever. Instead, verse 14, the earth will eventually only know the glory of the Lord, whose fame will stretch as far as the waters cover the sea. Verses 15 to 17, we see here it's their abuse of power. Taking what they want and desire for their neighbours. Humiliating them. Forcing shame upon them. In return, they themselves will be filled with shame. They will be exposed. God's wrath is coming for them. Because they have killed and maimed and destroyed everything in front of them. But why is God doing this? Surely God said that he would use these people to enact justice in chapter 1. We see that in verses 5 to 11 here in Habakkuk. So why is he enacting vengeance upon them after they've carried out his will? Well, look at verses 18 to 19 with me. Verse 18 says this, Of what value is an idol carved by a craftsman? 
or an image that teaches lies. For the one who makes it trusts in his own creation. He makes idols that cannot speak. Woe to him who says to wood come to life or to lifeless stone wake up. Can it give guidance? It is covered with gold and silver. There is no breath in it. Simply put, they worship idols instead of God. Anything that rejects God can only be considered wicked. We have to accept that. And if God is rejected, then these woes do not just apply to the judgment shown against the Babylonians here, but they extend out across history, even as far as us today. God hates sin. He hates it. God hates sin so much, because it doesn't just diminish his glory, but it has destroyed the overflow of his goodness, his creation. Time after time, empires have risen. They've amassed wealth, fame, power, glory. But they all eventually fall. Whether it's the Ottoman Empire, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, the Babylonian Empire, the Egyptian Empire, the Roman Empire, even the British Empire. None of them have lasted. These empires have only existed in time because they were ordained by God. And even then, these empires have been used by him to carry out his means. Despite their evil and their wickedness, God used the Roman Empire, for example, as a springboard through which the gospel could be spread across Asia Minor and Europe. And that's only one example, but the point I want to make is this. Because God is sovereign... He doesn't act like a puppet master who then cuts the strings once he's finished playing. He allows things to happen for his own purposes so that his power could be manifested and made known. And this can be difficult to wrap our minds around. Not just because it's hard to take emotionally, but because we are quick to dismiss and make excuses for lax behaviour or any wrongdoing. But even we, in our sinful judgment, have a breaking point. We all demand justice, especially when we see atrocities happening in the world around us. Even in our communities, even here in Broccoli, even amongst our families and our friends. We know people who are hurting. We know people who are in distress, who feel the weight and the burden that we desperately want to take off them. But we know we can't do it because it's out of our hands and out of our control. Joe Thorne, the pastor at Redeemer Fellowship in St. Charles, Illinois, says this. Like Habakkuk, you may be watching as your plans, hopes, or even your entire world is suffering. The temptation we all face in such circumstances is to take matters into our own hands and act as though we were God. But that's not what the Bible says. Look at verse 20 with me here. It reminds us of our position and God's position. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. God is here. Everyone else is down here. The only thing that separates the wicked and the righteous down here goes back to verse 4. It's faith. In chapter 1, Habakkuk thought God was silent whilst the world raged on. 
But in reality, no one has the right to speak before God. Unlike the idols in verses 18 to 19 here, who are lifeless and have no breath. The one who gives us every breath we draw, he speaks and declares his final judgment upon his enemies and his people's enemies. We are not God. But we can take rest in knowing that those who come against us, those who might oppress us or insult us, those who put us down, those people who don't like us, the ones who have problems or the, or the problems that we face because of a system that's failed us or because we wrestle against Satan and his powers of darkness. We are not God, but they are not God either. Our God is the one who sits in his holy temple. He sits on his sovereign throne and no one has the right to stand before him or against him. But we can stand before him. Not because we've earned the right to. And not because we have this bespoke privilege on account of who we are. By faith, through the grace of God, in Christ alone, we enter his presence. And we stand before our God. It's here that we realise that we are helpless. We realise that we are weak and we are unable to do much but Christ has done it all. Earlier we heard from the book of Hebrews where the writer is encouraging his readers to persevere and keep going in faith. He says this, Remember those earlier days after you had received the light, when you endured in a great conflict full of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times you stood side by side with those who were so ill-treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. The prophet Habakkuk here in this book, he felt afflicted because God's people were also afflicted. Hundreds of years later, when the letter to Hebrews was written, the same afflictions were felt by God's people then. Has anything changed today? Of course not. But the God who is on the throne hasn't changed either. R.C. Sproul says this, The promises of God for tomorrow are the anchors for believers today. The promises that we can hold on to today are found in his word. His word that has been written down for us to read and to see for ourselves. And those promises speak of one person. One person who walked on this earth. Who knew the evil and suffering of this world. Who knew the evil and wickedness of our hearts. But he gave himself to suffer and die On that cross and that cup of wrath that we see in verse 16 here of Habakkuk chapter 2. That cup was coming for us. But instead he drank that cup dry. As he hung on that tree. When we stand before God who is on the throne. We realize how low and unworthy we are. But we do not stand before him in ourselves. By faith. In Christ alone, we can come before the God who is ever-present. The God who looks at us and he doesn't see us for our wickedness. 
But he looks at us and sees the righteousness of his son. His son who himself sits on that throne. His son who knows our pain. He knows and sympathizes with our sorrows as his heart is gentle and lowly towards us. He knows our hurting. He knows our state of disrepair. By faith we stand in him. By faith we stand in Christ Jesus, our God, who is our righteousness. Even our late royal servant, Queen Elizabeth, held on to this faith. In her life, she was an example to us all in living out that faith. These are her words shortly after she faced adversity when she lost her mother and her sister in 2002. Queen Elizabeth said this. I know just how much I rely on my own faith to guide me through the good times and the bad. Every day is a new beginning. I know that the only way to live my life is to try to do what's right, to take the long view, to give my best in all that the day brings, and to put my trust in God. That trust and faith is built upon the promises of what God's word says to us in hope. And that hope is this. One day, Jesus is coming back. And when Jesus returns, he will bring divine judgment on those who are against him. But for those who trust him, who live in the faith of his promises, of his actions and himself, he will redeem us. He will save us. And so because of this, we can live by faith. We can live by faith each and every day because we live in the hope of justice to come and for grace to come in the form of God's Son, our King, our Saviour, Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is our reward. And Christ is our victory. Let me pray.